And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. And welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly dip into the arts, the culture and the community simmering and bubbling in East, in East London. But that the, the, these things always inspire and resonate way beyond this little corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Katie Haler. Hello, good to be here. And our newest Eastcast member, Johnny Virgo. Hi, you all. How are you doing? And tonight we're joined by artist Rosalind Fowler to tell us about her current installation, Nowhere Somewhere at the Barbican. We explore whether marriage these days is still relevant or modern day madness. And I talked to Stephen Madison, Tessa McQuatt and Nicola Peard of the University of East London about a city-focused literature prize for young writers. But first, we're joined in the studio by poet, author and activist Angry Sam. Well, about 10 years ago, I was asked to host a poetry evening in Brighton as an MC. A mutual friend introduced me to Angry Sam, who was promoting the hammer and tongue night that surfed the wave of spoken word being super cool. And I had my mind blown by what I saw. Now, Hammer and Tongue is an established institution on the London literary scene, and Angry Sam is the driving force behind it. He does a whole lot more, from activism to his acclaimed one-man theatre show. He is a poet with integrity, and I respect that. So, Sam, what have you been up to? What projects have you got going on? Hi, Johnny. All right. Uh, well, um, I just did a, a show in the summer, which was about East London. It was about gentrification in Hackney. Okay, in what particular, was that uh, It was called... Crosshatch, yeah, which is a, which comes from a China Melville novel, which, which is called The City in the City, and it's about like two cities occupying the same space, mm-hmm. but they unsee each other. So like you, you know, you, they they occupy the same streets, but they completely. Um, there's, it's, it's very well policed that they're not allowed to see each other. Okay, right? so kind of like the city in the city, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's so that's the you know so that's kind of I felt that's quite true of Hackney, like okay. that one person's. Uh, Playground, you know, is, is another person's like gangland no-go area and, yeah. and how these kind of communities overlap with each other and don't have that much crosshatch, which is a bit in the, in the middle. And where was that playing? That was at Rich Mix. Oh, brilliant. Um, I see you reference a lot of social s- struggles at home and abroad in your poetry. How much are art and activism linked in your opinion? Um, well, I think I just write about stuff you know right about how i see the world right okay and uh you know i feel like uh you know that i see the world I'm, I'm i just sort of feel like we should be talking about concepts of justice we should be talking about concepts of equality um I'm, i stand for life and humanity and love and against death and inhumanity and 
Selfishness. Okay, but yeah. how's that inspired you? What what projects has that arisen? So, so I don't know. So I just so a lot of my poetry is quite political. I feel like as a poet, you know, dealing with language, I try to intervene in the discourse of the world. Okay. So like you know, discourse is a powerful thing. The things that you're being told, you don't realise that you're repeating them as propaganda. And my my job, I think, is to intervene, expose it, kind of with irony, with cynicism, and to try and like get people to think in a different sort of way. Okay, so you clearly make that link between the power of art and reality. But what other poets and other artists on the scene, in the zeitgeist, if you will, are influencing you right now? So, I mean, I think the sort of the two major influences of my work uh, is one is a guy called Christopher Logue who who died a few years ago. Who was a poet for sort of mainly in the '60s, I suppose people knew him. Yeah. Um, he never really got very far in terms of recognition. Um, but, I, you know, the way that he did things, I'm really inspired by. Uh, and the other guy's a, a guy called Roots Manoeuvre. Oh, you yeah, 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 yeah. I know Roots Manoeuvre. <laughs> yeah, so. so, yeah, I've heard of him. Um, <laughs> so in what way does Christopher Logue inspire your work then? Um, just that he tried to, you know, his poetry became uh, very much like ordinary language. You know, speaking poetry in ordinary language that still had the beauty uh, of the language that was quite prepared to sort of mess around with genre and things, you know, like he did poster poems, yeah. he did poetry over music, yeah. he did poetry that was, um, you, you know, that was directly political, that was satirical um, and uh, and sort of, do you know, took apart some of the things that were established, you know, like he did a reworking of Homer's Iliad um, in a very different way. Okay. Yeah. So I can see how that would have inspired you, someone like you, who went on to found that Hammer and Tongue, which I say is an institution, and I mean, I really mean that. Since I've seen it the first time I saw it, it's grown and grown and grown. What sort of things are going on with Hammer and Tongue at the minute? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing he said was like, we want art that is entertaining, but not entertainment, right? Okay. And that where, where the poetry is, the, the performance of the poetry is, a, is a, the second part of the creation of it. Yes. You know, so that's what he, that inspired me when I saw Hammer and Tongue, which was a night in Oxford. Okay, um, I was really inspired by that of like poetry as a live entertainment or entertaining, you know. But it still had meaning and content. But you could go out like a club night, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I tell you, when I, every time I've been there, I've been amazed. Yeah. So you built this platform for the spoken word scene. Yeah, because then, because then, like the one you came to in Brighton was when I set up. That was the second Hammer and Tongue. Yeah. And now there's six around the country. Okay. And we run like the national, we run Hammer and Tongue National Slam, which can, is like, all the slam winners from every slam we can find. We bring them together. We do it at the Albert Hall yeah. once a year. Can yeah. I jump in for those yeah. who don't know? Can you explain a little bit the concept because it's got it's quite specific. You 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 know, the, there's a kind of voting system. And yeah, I mean, how, I mean, people know no spoken words. And when we first started doing it, you'd yeah. have to explain what spoken word is, but people know what it is now. But the, I mean, I guess our point is to like put on big artists and people that we think are good that people don't know about, but okay. also provide a platform for people to come and do their poetry. So we do a poetry slam. A slam is like judged competition poetry. So you randomly give scorecards to people in the audience and they give scores out of 10 for the poets, which is a bit of a gimmick. Um, but also it's about handing power of judgment yeah. to the people. And a lot of people say when you give them a scorecard, they're like, oh, I don't know anything about poetry. And you're like, well, you do you know. know what you like? You know, and just say what you like. So it's given that kind of power to people, and also it's given a bit of feedback to the poets. Like if you keep coming back and you keep getting low marks, you've got to ask yourself, "What am I doing <laughs> wrong?" You know. So, what kind of poets have you had through in in the nights? Um, it seems, like, so, and I now run the one in Hackney in Shoreditch okay. uh, at the book club, and uh, you know, recently we've been putting on quite a lot of rappers. Now coming on, so we had Tony D, yeah. you know, from Poisonous Poets, Don't yeah. Flop Champion. We had um, Awate, who's like a, a Camden-based rapper. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we got next month. We got Keith Jarrett, 
who's a who's a wicked poet um and you know just all kinds of different people i suppose yeah cool so what have you guys got lined up for the future with uh both your own projects and Hammer and Tongue. I mean, Hammer and Tongue sort of it's like this network of nights. It's all done like unfunded, pretty much. It's like a sort of DIY shoestring budget. So you know, we'd like to expand it. We'd like to be in more places, more cities. It's a sort of you know, and we'd like to be getting it out there, especially to the north. We seem to not have too many nights in the north, so we'd like that to grow. Um, we'd like the national final to become a bit more of an institution. I think people now recognise that the Hamilton National Final is probably the biggest slam in the country, mm-hmm. the most comprehensive, the one to win. So we'd like to just keep going with that, keep pushing it. I would have given it, I keep wanting to give it up, but like, <laughs> we do it every month and then people come and they always seem to enjoy it. And then I think, okay, all right, if people are enjoying it, we'll keep going. Well, you've got to keep going. Yeah. So where can people find out about your upcoming projects? Or say someone heard this and decided they wanted to set up Hammer and Tongue Barnsley or Hammer and Tongue Lincoln or something. How would they get in touch with you? Well, you can check out hammerandtongue.com uh, and um, you can follow it at Hammer and Tongue and, and so on. And, and me, I'm Angry Sam Poet. So you can follow that on Twitter and Angry Sam Poetry on the WordPress site as well. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Sam. Now, Sam's going to read a piece for us. Well, what's the piece called? Oh, okay. Um, this is the, my last, my most recent book was a book of poems about Western Sahara which we probably don't have time to explain the whole history of. Um, um, if you could give us a brief potted history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Western Sahara is like a former Spanish colony. Um, it's still after Spain left in 1975 at the death of Franco. Instead of being given independence as promised, it was handed over to the Moroccans. So it's now part of Morocco. And it's a really untalked about conflict. And half the con- since the invasion, half the population of Western Sahara fled and they're still in refugee camps 40 years on. So I published a book 40 years after that invasion uh, and I, cause I lived amongst the refugees there who had been there for 40 years in these camps and they were sort of Bedouin people yeah. and, uh, and I met with poets and translated them through an interpreter because I don't speak um, Arabic and they speak a particular dialect of Arabic and this poem is by a guy called Buddy who's a, he's an elder there and he's looking back at the time when they were nomads because so you know, it's a Bedouin culture mm-hmm. and that time living in the desert where you just move from the follow the tracks of the rains and you're never in one place mm-hmm. and uh, it's called Tishwash which means something like nostalgia or the pleasure of remembering things that are past brilliant all that has been has gone how great the living and everlasting God but how beautiful this scene is. I see it sometimes. No particular place, just there with the goats, like those nights I spent at the mouth of a well making the wet sand my bed, enchanted by night's music, the howl of wild dogs and insects whine. Or in the water in season, when the wheat is still to produce its seed, I am there in the midst of the life of the camp doing some little thing about which you do not need to ask. Or there we are, Travelling in the dark before dawn, from one stopping place to the next, the only sound the swishing of camel's tails before the sun has risen to our eye-line, walking on to those first lucid hours of the day when the desert's features are clearest, knowing both rocky valley and the smooth. And there again is the taste of tea, flavoured with a herb called dye, in water sourced from the valley floor after the rains, or scooped from pools on concave rocks where a river had run before, when we were moving our camp from a dried-up well where the only firewood left was no better than kindling. And I can smell that animal hide next to the spit and see the clean bones beside that hide. How come, my brother, you do not remember this, the sweet life full of living? It is no longer with us, 
and if Tishwash could bring it back, it would add Tishwash to the Tishwash of my Tishwash. Yeah. Thanks, nice. Sam. Real powerful. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so what's the, what's the title of the book again, sir? Uh, so the book's called Settled Wanderers and is published by Influx Press. So if you go to influxpress.com, you can get a copy of that. Settled Wanderers. Cool. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, now let me tell you another story. A scene is set in old London town and with the nights drawing in, a host of talented teenagers are inspired to put pen to paper about their city. They're challenged, but they persevere, and ultimately, someone wins a great treasure, or £500 to be precise, as well as some incredible literary opportunities. Intrigued? Well, on the 1st of November, a creative writing competition opens its doors to 16 to 19-year-old writers from London. The judges are looking for stories that question what or who the capital is, and how Londoners live. But why? What's so great about a story? Well, we have this rather modest view of the world, which is that writing can change the world and make it better. Those are the humble words of... Uh, my name is Stephen Madison. Uh, um, Those, and a few more, <laughs> were the humble words of Stephen Madison, one of the founders of the City Life's Prize for Fiction by Young Writers. I popped into the University of East London's Dockless campus to meet Stephen and fellow creator and judge, author Tessa McWatt, to find out more about the competition. Uh, my name is Stephen Madison. Um, I am head of humanities here at the university and Tessa and I um, set up the prize together, which partly relates to our work on the City Life project. My name is Tessa McQuart. I'm a professor in creative writing at the University of East London and I set up the prize with Stephen Madison, my colleague, and I'm one of the judges on the prize as well. The city is a place for um, a, a huge amount of change and ideas and we wanted to tap into um, young people and their voices and what it meant to be in London at this time um, for someone between the ages of 16 and 19. We wanted to bring voices that aren't heard normally into the to the um, mainstream, really. The prize is um, part of our City Life project, which is a civic engagement project um, here at the University of East London. So the students went into um, community centres like the Canning Town Library and Age UK Stroke Survivors um, workshops and um, meetings, weekly meetings, and to Richard Hout's Hospice for Children. And um, in that way, they understood different parts of the community, but also um, were engaging in stories that they hadn't imagined that they could ever hear before. And so those those other um, centres were really happy to have us because not often do they get to tell their stories. The one thing about change is that you rarely see it coming. Most of the time, it's already here. When I found the first patch just behind my right ear, concealed by the hair that would be there for a while yet, I didn't know. We meet what it was. new, fabulous, wonderful young writers that come to the university with extraordinary stories to tell. And what we wanted to do with the City Life project, but also with the prize, was celebrate that writing and give it space and give it the opportunity to affect the kind of social change that we feel that writing can bring by allowing people to tell stories and share stories, make stories that haven't been heard before. My hands in my hair, where I'd pulled it back to get a closer look. I didn't think any more of it. It was like I'd turned up Young somewhere. Young people's voices are 
actually strangely not heard and one of the things that the kind of writing that we encourage and that we celebrate does is is kind of offset the the kind of soundbite culture that so many young people um, are kind of embroiled in what we see is that there's a real thirst for young people to explore the world around them in more depth and in, in a more creative way. And we really, really wanted to celebrate that. So this prize is about celebrating, giving young people the opportunity to tell the stories that they want to tell about the world around them. My hair fell out almost a year before mine did. Maybe I didn't panic that morning because I'd used up all of my hair worry for her. Worry was all my family did when it was happening and we didn't know what it was, asking each other the same questions in hushed voices. What's happening? It's not cancer, is it? Um, My name's Nicola Peard. Um, I was a student at University of East London and a participant in the City Life Project and I'm just here to talk about what it is to be a writer as part of the City Life Project and kind of really explain what the prize would really mean to someone who was coming into the project. The topic, I think, is the city, Mm. all about London. What would be your first reaction to that as a writer? What ideas come to mind in terms of stories? My most immediate reaction would be my connection to the city. Um, I wasn't raised in London, I come from outside of London. So moving here and moving into East London as well, it changed everything for me. It's a huge topic and that was partly because this is the first year of the prize, it's the inaugural year of the prize. We want to keep the the scope of inspiration for our young writers as wide as possible but it's also because this is where we are and we see massive changes taking place in the city all the time. The very notion of what city life is, is up for grabs and we were just really really excited by the prospect of finding out what young people living in London in this place now thought about their city and how it was changing around them. What do participants get out of being involved? Well, first of all, um, they get a chance to have their writing read by experts, um, by our panel of judges. And if they um, desire, they can come in and have their work um, workshopped before they submit it. We have two dates, one in December and one in February. So they get the kind of real-life professional treatment of what a writer and, and an editor go through in order to get to that point of having a polished piece. They get the experience of what it's like to be on a creative writing course in that way. And so they have a, an, an opening, I think, in their in their lives that allows them to think of themselves as writers and possibly to go on to be writers in a um, more um, focused way. And of of course, the winner um, gets £500 and gets published in the City Life Anthology, gets um, celebrated at our event in um, May, the Right Now event. And um, 10 of the shortlisted writers will get um, published on our website, on our City Life website. So again, it's exposure, it's feeling that they're a part of a community of writers. We've already been doing some workshops in in local schools and colleges to advertise the prize. Um, We are going to be talking to a lot more people, such as yourself, um, about the prize, which is great. Um, We've got some workshops happening at the university. And I think for us, that's one of the most important parts of the prize, actually, is to give um, local young people an opportunity to come together and meet one another as writers and have some guidance um, from our professional team here that will en- hopefully enable them to kind of liberate their voice. So what we would strongly encourage is anyone, even if you've not had any experience of writing before but you have a yearning to write, pick up that pen and have a go and come along to one of the workshops. 
There we have it. This is your chance to get involved. Here's Tessa with a few more details. No restrictions on genre or topic or style. The one restriction is um, that it be under 5,000 words and that the writer needs to be 16 or between 16 and 19 between November uh, 1st of this year and March 15th of 2017 and that they need to be living in London or attending a school in a borough of London. And if you need inspiration, here are a few top tips to get you going. Own your own voice. Show, don't tell. What you create has value regardless of what anyone said to you before or anyone will ever say to you. So if you are a young and budding London-based writer, or you know of any, now's the time to put pen to paper, or fingers to keyboard. Uh, You can submit your stories from the 1st of November, right up until the 15th of March, and it's free to enter. So find out more at the website, which is uel.ac.uk slash events, and then you can click on the Creative Writing Competition. Amazing. Thanks, Katie. Now we have Rosalind Fowler with us in the studio. Rosalind currently has a pedal-powered installation in the foyer of the Barbican called Nowhere Somewhere and has been an artist in residence at the William Morris Gallery in Waltham Forest. Welcome, Rosalind. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So uh, tell us a bit about this installation. Yeah, Okay. so... um Well, the work's actually showing uh, in two forms at the moment. So I've got a pedal-powered installation at the Barbican, and then I've also got a two-screen installation of the same piece of work, Nowhere Somewhere, at the William Morris Gallery um, in Walthamstow. Um, So the piece of work evolved out of um, an artist's residency I did at the William Morris Gallery. Um, That was awarded to me actually in October last year, and it ran through till the end of February. Um, and for that um, residency, I actually it, the work was inspired by William Morris's utopian novel called News from Nowhere. Um, and in it, the protagonist falls asleep and wakes up into the, in this imaginary future London that's been transformed into this beautiful garden city. And um, I, I'm basically a gardener, Organic Lee, a food growing cooperative uh, in Waltham Forest. And I was very interested in some of the resonances between um, William Morris's dreams for a utopian London and some of the kind of politics and ideas underlying this food growing cooperative. So they're they're very kind of into, um, you know, promoting a local food economy, relationship to nature, uh, respect for kind of uh, others and non-hierarchical systems, uh, production only for uh, what is required rather than wastage, you know, alternative energies, all these things. It was really interesting to me how William Morris's utopian novel, News from Nowhere, um, suggests a lot of these ideas so I'm kind of drawing out some of the similarities and resonances in in this work which is sort of a filmic portrait of that place Um, but it's also um, as well as that it's kind of a space for gardeners to dream about their own visions of a utopian London. Um, Sorry I'm (laughs) (laughs) sorry I just want to jump in because um, this I'm really intrigued by this novel by William Morris because for me, and I think for a lot of people, William Morris's wallpaper and patterns and flowers and and I, I had no idea that he also wrote. Um, and so why, why do you think this? we don't know about this novel? It's a good question and I'm not sure. Um, I think... 
Yeah, I mean, he uh, later in his life, I mean, William Morris was a ridiculously kind of prolific and um, productive person. So, um, yeah, alongside his his designs, his involvement in the arts and craft movement, that was really closely interlinked with all his ideologies, actually, and his, his influences. And he um, actually, as his life went on, he dedicated himself more and more to sort of uh, socialism and uh, was a very active socialist, sort of took part in pro, uh, protests, kind of wrote in radical newspapers, published... Um, radical newspapers and um which name whose name the common the common wheel that's what it's called one of them um and yeah so actually it was it was increasingly an important part of his life and i think living in victorian london he saw a lot of the problem you know he was very passionate about the problems of the time so it was the start of mass production there was a lot of exploitation a lot of poverty um he was very because he made these kind of beautiful objects which were very craft pace based and they were very um high quality he he hated this idea of kind of mass production and waste and kind of um so in a way you know you see those ideas echoing through in his novel and and perhaps so in that way i guess what i'm trying to say is his designs and his wallpapers are not so far removed from his novel and some of the ideas expressed within them and within that, there's contradictions. You know, he was his art. You know, his craft, his wallpapers. They were only accessible to the very privileged people, and he himself was a very privileged man. And yet, his you know, he was very much uh, advocating equality, socialism. So there's all those kind of contradictions as well. And tell us more about this idea of ecotopia. What, what what's that? What? Yeah. So um, so yeah. So as I said, um, he. A lot of these, a lot of the ideas that come through in the novel are things like, um, I guess his. So the protagonist falls asleep and wakes up to this beautiful garden city. So the novel sort of describes a place where, you know, for example, the salmon in the Thames, uh, all the factories um, have been disbanded. Instead, the sort of small scale workshops. Um, there's uh, localized economies. So London is almost like a series of villages. There's a very sensuous people's relationship to nature is very sensuous within even within the city uh so there's a lot of urban growing um so it's those kind of things that that drew my attention and and yeah i i found interesting links there and you so you spoke about um organically and you involved the gardeners um we were talking earlier about the the seed packets do you want to tell us more about that yeah in fact well actually first of all let me just say that for my residency i'll come back to the seed packets for my residency i set up um i actually yeah it was very it was the first time i've sort of made a piece of work based within a community and i think it was my the fact that I'd been a gardener there before, which gave me this sort of access to that world and um, and that felt like a real privilege. And so for my residency, I actually set quite ambitiously sort of set up a film lab on site uh, there. So I had a yurt and I, I made a dart room and I hand processed um, all my 16 millimetre film 
there so I, I filmed black and white 16 millimeter film and then I hand processed it in this yurt through the winter um, and I also experimented with natural plant dyes so I used things like plants and vegetables on site to tint um, ele- elements of the film and the, and one of the reasons it wasn't this one of the reasons why I, I sort of this was one of my methods actually the final work uses digital film as well uh, in it's sort of a collage of 16 millimeter and digital but one of the reasons I used these craft techniques was I was quite also interested in this idea of film as craft. So William Morris's visions of a, of, of a perfect future London uh, were a sort of craft-based society. So I wanted to kind of, you know, embody those through my methods. Um, so now, coming back to the Seed Packet Project, sorry if that I digressed a bit. Um, so, yes, that was another element of the project. And you can see these seed packets at the William Morris Gallery. Um, so I put a call out to... Uh, the gardeners around the borough of Waltham Forest to get their own empty seed packets and to open them out and to imagine, just like just as in the novel, to imagine you fall asleep and wake up in an imaginary future London and to write or draw on a seed packet your dreams and visions for what that would be. So then I've collected a whole load of those and um, those are on display on, in, on gardening trellis at the William Morris Gallery at the moment alongside the, the video installation, the two screen installation. And at the Barbican, um, I've also put a tr- piece of trellis there and uh, I'm inviting the audience to do the same to kind of, um, you can, you know, any any of you, anyone can go along and uh, write their own ideas. So. Are there any that come to mind from the, the gardeners of, uh, that have really kind of resonated or I've put you on the spot? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I... This, some of them have uh, let me think about this that um i haven't got time to think i'm on the radio <laughs> um the, the, a lot of them just things that you would expect i guess things like car free london you know so everyone's cycling um you know affordable housing um non-hierarchical yeah, structures um but actually what actually what i can within the film itself um some of the gardeners are sharing their visions of imagining future london and i'll tell you about a couple of those because they are in my head um so for example um rewilding epping forest and having like wolves and bears because apparently in times gone by you know a lot of these animals were there um and uh interplanetary seed swapping um so sharing seeds and ideas with people from other planets um what else um well they've all gone out of my head but there's yeah anyway you have to come see the work to see some of them well exactly so people should go to the barbican and this uh installation is on until the 9th of november Yes, that's yes. right. Yes, and as part, so just explain. So you, people are pedaling, and the pedaling makes the film work. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. So, um, so for those of you who don't fancy kind of the participatory element um, at the William Morris Gallery, you can just sit there and watch it. And in a way, actually, the subtleties of the work. I feel perhaps come across best at the William Morris Gallery because you can sit there and watch it quietly. Um, in the Barbican foyer, it's more of a participatory sort of experience amidst the, the you know, the, the buzz and the hustle and bustle of the Barbican. But yes, that's right. You, you sit on, there's two bikes there and you yourself kind of actually make the film happen. You, you have to sit there and pedal. There's a little plinth with an LED strip so the lights go from 
green uh, sorry from red to amber to green and you can you know see how much energy you're generating and how much more you need before the film powers up um so I, you know i like the idea of um people having to think a little bit more about how they generate energy and you know they're themselves participating in creating a greener future by not using electricity even to see the film and you worked with a sound a sound artist as well on this um called andre Baco, do you want to tell us how that happened? What 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 did he do specifically? We're, we're running out of time, so very oh, briefly. Okay. Yeah, so um, he yes, I've worked with him before. He's he's fantastic. He um, so we um, well he the the way that we work together is obviously a lot of talking about the conceptual ideas within the piece, um, and then um. I, I received some further arts council funding to make to complete the work, which was really helpful because then I knew I could sort of get a sound artist on board. So then we started conversations. Um, in, in the work, he, a lot of the um, rec- most of the recordings are actually from Organic Lee, so sounds of gardeners uh, digging, you know, gardening sounds, tools hitting the earth, um, contact mics on spades, and those kind of things. So it's a really beautiful. Um, it's a really beautiful piece um, and I could say a little bit more but I don't know if I've got No, well, I think the best thing is for people to obviously go and experience it themselves That's and right, we, yeah. we, um, consi- you know, we thought about trying to play something here but you need four speakers uh, right. to get the kind of full volume and sound and, and all, the, all the subtleties of it. So um, because we couldn't do that, we are going to sp- actually play something else um, by Andrej which... Um, You spoke about the buzz of the Barbican, so we're going to play bees. No, we haven't been attacked by bees in the studio. This is actually a sound piece by Andre Bacco. And um, so he has produced the sound for your installation, which I will remind everyone is at the Barbican. And also, so you can go to the Barbican at the moment and also the William Morris Gallery. They're both on at the moment, the, the William Morris Gallery till the 6th of November, the Barbican until the 9th of November. Great, thank you. Thanks so much, Rosalind, for coming in. And um, we, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going. I'm going to go and check that out. I'm do some pedalling. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to the East Cast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Cast Show. You can listen again anytime you like to all our interviews and music on iTunes via the podcast version, which is Eastcast, all one word, show London, and at eastcastshow.com, where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, bringing all of your audio news straight into your inbox. Now from bees to marriage. I don't know how that works, but... (laughs) 
Okay, really bad link. Um, (laughs) So with divorce rates at their highest and people still spending extortionate amounts of money on weddings, propaganda at the book club in Shoreditch asked the question, till death do us part, is marriage today an unnecessary life sentence? Exit freedom of thought. The time is not yet. Let us pray that it never happens. We agree that capitalism is an economic system, a system for the production and distribution of things we need and want. If you treat her right, she might make you a darn good employee. What's the answer? Is it money or is it magic? These marriages are not perfect. Marriage is an institution for grown-ups. Do you think you can help us get married? Welcome to the Sixth Propaganda, where we pop notions around an accepted topic of the day. Today we're going to be discussing whether marriage today is an unnecessary life sentence. I'm Zoe Cunningham, I'm an actor and a software developer, kind of two extremes all rolled up into one person, and I'm joined by Andrew G. Marshall and Isabel Broom. Isabel Broom writes... My publisher would describe my books as escapist romantic fiction, though that's a bit derogatory. But they are written predominantly for women and about women. And she's about to publish her second novel, A Year and a Day, later this year. And she's also the book review editor for Heat magazine. Which is a horrible celebrity rag, if you will. (laughs) found on the table of all the doctors' waiting room surgeries in the country. Andrew G. Marshall is coming from a slightly different perspective. He's an author and a marital therapist. I'm a big fan of, uh, of marriage, which might sound strange if you spend the majority of your time helping people who have actually got a problem with their marriage. His book, I Love You But I'm Not In Love With You, sold 100,000 copies and is published worldwide. His latest book is It's Not a Midlife Crisis, It's an Opportunity. And his stated goal is to be the man who killed the idea of soulmates. Because soulmates, and I'm afraid to say, Isabel is one of the industries that is perpetuating this idea, that we're going to get together because the two of us are so deeply connected and that we love each other so much, all of our problems are going to drop away... (laughs) And we're going to live happily ever after. It's written into my publishing contract that my novels must contain a love story, that it must be central to the plot. And I'm also urged by my editor, I say urged, ordered, (laughs) to give my characters a resolution, one that she claims that the readers demand. They need to know that the characters will be okay. So even if you leave the story at a point where a tragedy has not long ago occurred, you must demonstrate to the reader that everything will be all right in the end. More often than not, this resolution involves settling down with a partner and or starting a family. Marriage is still viewed as a positive ending, in my particular genre anyway, a precursor of a happy ever after. My primary aim is to entertain, to offer a reader escapism and diversion. And reading about love and believing, even if it's just for a few hours, that two people can in some way be meant for each other makes a lot of people happy. As we all know, life actually isn't as simple as it is in the and they lived happily ever after dot, dot, dot ending where everything's tied up because Isabel's editor wants it to be tied up. A wonderful quote by the founder of mindfulness called John Kabat-Zinn says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think what I'm all about is teaching people how to surf. I read a quote online yesterday from a woman who'd recently been through a divorce. 
And she said, if only I'd planned my marriage as well as I'd planned my wedding, then it might have stood a chance. Because people don't argue enough. They bury all of their stuff and then say, oh, we're no longer suitable. That the arguments can actually bring the emotions back up to the surface, actually solve out those issues. There's still a huge appetite out there for breakup stories, even more so than for the hookup stories. And each time a divorce makes the headlines, I think the very concept of marriage takes a battering. The whole concept of signing a bit of paper to say you'll be with another person for the rest of your life is insane, and it's bizarre. We certainly wouldn't do it for anything else in our lives, would we? But then love is insane and bizarre, I would argue. And that is why we do sign our loves away to someone else. Limerence and the fantasy gets us over the threshold and actually you know, will make us do the mad, crazy things. I was once asked, what's the craziest thing you've done for love? And I said, get married. I'm trying to write a book about marriage. So I've been talking to loads and loads of people recently about why they've got married. And it's really interesting that the whole licence idea is... Everybody says they just got married because they fell in love. It was the one. It was love. Not a single person I've spoken to has come up with the legal reason. Until I spoke to my brother, who's a chartered accountant, who <laughs> joined on at length about how if you don't get married, you're screwed. If, you, if you're with your partner for 50 years and you get hit by a car, they, the person who turns off your life support machine will be your brother, will be your sister, it will not be your partner. So it's interesting that now you don't have to get married. The reason we're getting married isn't this sort of contract idea, I don't think. It's the romance idea, which I think is really interesting. Another way of looking at marriage that I came across, that actually, in many ways, we think of marriage as people who get married, they have the strong relationships, right? It's a really public commitment. You're saying, well, look, look at us, you know, we're going to be together forever. Um, but actually, in many ways, if you're putting something into a contract, um, it's almost like you're having to force yourself to stay with that person because you've got a contract. So another way of looking at it, is it actually stronger to say, well, every day I decide whether I'm still with this person? Is marriage for you and your partner or is it for other people? I'm 23 and people that are married you know, on Facebook, people I haven't spoken to in years, one person kind of sticks in my head and I think it's pretty much every day she uploads a photo of their recent wedding and there's hashtags everywhere like the happiest day of my life ever. Are you doing this for you because surely if if those photos mean that much to you you could sit with your husband and you could you could appreciate them together why why does it have to be this big show for everybody else you know realistically who's the wedding for i think there's a big difference between marriage and weddings i think when you're in love you do feel like you're invincible and you you're in such a bubble that you want to share it with everyone you know you're like i'm in love everybody should feel this happy i'm so happy you're putting marriage down as some kind of performance art that everybody who's married is going around saying our relationships are stronger than your relationships. I don't know quite where that comes from. I think this whole conversation that we're having is very, very westernised. Marriage is entirely different in so many different parts of the world. Does the actual act of getting married have any impact on the outcome of your relationship? What shocks me is that I'm seeing individuals much older than I am who aren't able to communicate in a way that I do with my partner, for example, with whom I deconstruct our relationship to almost objective levels. It works fantastically well. There is always something to be taken away from that for everybody. I would almost say that many people aren't qualified to marry. So what qualifications would you need to get married, do you think? A degree of self-awareness, a dialogue with yourself, or a monologue, rather, um, not the crazy kind. But... Uh, 
being able to recognize your own or, or observe your own behavior, just observation and, and mindfulness, actually, in that regard. I feel like, just I think in my own personal experience, the difference between my generation and older generations is that it was a lot more, I don't know whether acceptable is the right word or just much more common for one person and generally the woman to kind of almost lose their self-identity when they get married. And I think that's maybe why my generation is questioning marriage. I think there's a lot of evidence that shows it is a generational thing. Within our generation, if we look within our social group of, say, 20, 25 couples, only one got divorced. My wife's sister, who was five or six years younger, probably 30% of her peer group divorced. And I imagine that percentage is going up. So did marriage mean an awful lot to us, just as an entire lifestyle, apart from anything? Absolutely. I'm the other half. (laughs) I got married at 21, didn't think about it. We're defining marriage as one thing, and marriage is not one thing. There was the person who got married at 21, there was the person who had a career, gave up a career, there was the person who was married and had children. The children went and grew up and went off to school. Each of these stages has presented me with a different stage in my marriage. And yes, I do need to know who I am, and I also need to know who my husband is and balance that communication between us. The love that I had when I was 21 was probably young and hopeful and naive. Just literally jumped into the fray. Had a wedding. It was like watching somebody else at the wedding. Had no idea what was going on. And the love after 44 years is a much more respectful love and the understanding of having gone through the ups and downs of the relationship actually gives a gravitas to the relationship so when I hit a wall or I feel that I'm hitting a wall I assess what I'm doing to contribute and it's my responsibility to look at the whole picture and say this is a very valuable institution where I've brought up two children, have two grandchildren. We married in 1972, when there really wasn't an alternative. You got married, you wanted to have children, etc., etc. From what I can see for in 2016, that there is a real choice. I think if once you make a commitment to a person, whether it's going to be a long-term relationship with or without marriage, it can be pretty easily defined with or without marriage. And like most contracts, it's largely about what happens if things go wrong. If things go right, you make it up as you go along and it's all fine. But it's what happens when a relationship breaks down, particularly when it's complicated with children. That's when contract isn't really that clear and interpreted. It's it's always messy and always bloody. It's a bloody experience. And I don't think the piece of paper actually makes much difference. The whole idea of one person's going to solve all our problems and be everything to us, that's the bit I want to kill, the bit that I want people... I'm with people... you, you've got my vote. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was, I was, you know I, what I want to back up is that sense of the longer you spend together, the better it can be yeah. in the sense that it is more multifaceted and the love that you have together has provided a secure place for your children to grow up and is now providing somewhere secure for your grandchildren to flourish as well. But it also provided a secure place for me to grow up. I'd love to know more about this licence of shared frequencies because 
those words sound to me like love. You can be committed to somebody and be in a committed relationship and be in their lives and that's the contract you have together but you're not necessarily putting that down as a formal contract. And almost the point of it then is that it's not forever, right? You're saying while our frequencies are shared we'll stay together and vibrate along together and if that's not the case then different things will happen in life. The idea of forever I think is just seems crazy to me. What, what does forever mean even? I would say that you could be with someone forever and I would willingly enter into that like that idea I think you know you have good friends that are in your life that you absolutely want to spend the rest of your life with you want them in your life these people are your I don't know they're your scaffolding they build you up my friends are really important to me and just because I'm not having a romantic relationship with them doesn't mean that I can't love them and then be in my life for the rest of my life you know I think the problem with romantic love is that you place too much pressure on a person because you look to them to be your everything and to be you know, your best friend, your, it's almost like you set the bar too high, you're setting yourself up for a fail. And I think love is, it starts here, you know, love yourself first, like yourself, accept yourself, and then someone else coming in can be a cherry on the cake, not, you know, the kind of sponge holding it all together. My parents described a marriage being two horses pulling a carriage. And the two horses do not pull exactly the same at the same time. And the commitment to each other is when one's tired, the other one pulls. And when the other one's tired, the other one pulls. And that's what goes on in friendship. That's what we expect from our friends. We don't expect our friends to do everything for us. Are we, from an evolutionary slash sort of Darwinian perspective, meant to be with one person forever? What do we think is going to happen in the future? Obviously, infrastructures change, technology change. These all start to socialise our behaviours our evolutionary psychology is modified over time. For better or for worse, what's going to happen in the future? I'm an optimist, and I believe that we're going to learn from our mistakes. I think that um, uh, we're going to find a way to manage social media, so you know, we, we're not performing all the time. Technology changes. People don't. People have been the same for thousands of years. They'll want to exhibit themselves to other human beings they want to have flashy weddings to show other people they want to settle down with one another they'll sometimes run off they'll sometimes fall out the technology will change but human beings haven't and won't as we go forward we evolve according to to society i think my mother and father should definitely have divorced but they couldn't because my mother was totally financially dependent on my father your generation i think the as far as i understand it the women are economically more than capable So, theoretically, your life happiness position, whatever it is, should be that much better. What I find interesting in the Darwinian thing is I read about a lot of unhappiness in single women. Marriage has become a throwaway commodity, if you will, and all our attention spans have shrunk down to almost zero. So, to some, it seems almost inevitable that a relationship only lasts for a short time while it's the fun bit at the beginning. Once it gets tricky or loses its shine, then it's simply easier to cut and run than to stick. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us here at Propaganda. Thanks to my speakers, Andrew G. Marshall and Isabel Broom. Thanks to everyone who came up and made a point or made a question. I really feel this has been a conversation with the whole room. And I think it's quite a nice conclusion that we've come to, that there is still a place for marriage, but perhaps that isn't for everyone. 
perhaps we need to look at new models and also accept that everyone's an individual, all couples are individual and do things in their own way and uh, that's a good thing. So thank you very much. So that was Propaganda. It was recorded live at the Shoreditch Book Club last month. And while we were listening to that, we were having a lively debate as well because Johnny's about to get married. So um, I'm not sure if that put you off. I'm sure it didn't. No, 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 no. God, it was interesting. I mean, I've been through many of those ideas before, obviously. And uh, now the time is right. I found the right person. We're going to make it official. (laughs) Aww. Right. So um, you did give us a taste of your spoken word adventure series, City of Conspiracy, last show. Can we have another chapter? Of course. A lot of people ask me why there's no real chapter one in the book that they put. The reason being chapter one is a rap song for, uh, that describes the death of the first character. So I'm going to just do that a cappella for you. Crossing Tower Bridge, middle of the nightscape, Q10 strikes three digits on the typeface. Being his bonnet, got his lashes like a hype slave. Feeling for Chantel because he peeped the pipe game. Pocket full of 50s, he's lucky to be alive because he's been chucking it with the dark side. Posing with a light face. Bruised by ill maneuvers so his boat's in a right state. Ran into a crew of bad news minds like snakes. Open up your eyes, mate. He's resting on the curb, just tested SD and thinking about his girl. Black Ford Taurus rolls up, rubber to burn. Engine starts to purr, it's about to rock his world. It's a foot race, pair of Nikes against 16 cylinders. Heading into Druids, situation's getting sinister. When Taurus comes gunning, TJ jumped up in a sweat, running fast as he could towards Elephant. You know TJ? Yeah, Miss Marsha's you. You know TJ? Runs with SD, seeking the truth. You know TJ? Used to be S-certified. You know TJ? Lives in a murder man's side. You know TJ? Rolls with a girl, Chantel. You know her? Yes, yeah, she's pretty. She could own the world. You know TJ? Down from the door in the state. You know TJ? Last night he met his fate. And he's fleet foot mark fast, but he's never going to make it. The tourist licked him down like a suspect. TJ runned over playing games with Satan, life flashing like a cliche as he's running on the pavement. The tourist board through him and running down blatant. Reports of the vehicle never made it in the papers. Situation was sinister and very, very dangerous. Traces were removed as if by government agents. The tourist licked him down. He was bawling, calling out Zeppa in the early morning, but nobody gathered round. And though the whole incident was surveillance recorded, when two black figures stepped out of the tourist, you could have worked for good, but instead you used the hood, running game on the populace like they're hypnotized by wood. They chasing gold and so many sold their souls the first figure waved the machete as tj spoke you know tj yeah miss marshall's you you know tj runs with sd seeking the truth you know a tj used to be certified lives out in the murder man's side you know tj rolls with that girl chantelle yeah she's so pretty she could run the world you know tj down from the door in the state yeah last night he met his fate Nice. Thank you very much. So remind us how City of Conspiracy works. So it's a choose your own adventure conspiracy thriller where many of the characters have rap songs from their point of view um, will be available as an app. It's currently available as a book. But again, don't buy it. <laughs> don't buy it again. It's like, no, after for some people bought it. it must I don't know. Oh so don't buy it yet. You can buy it in the future. I'll tell you when. Right. So it's sadly time for us to say goodbye. Um, Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. And in the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com or um, on iTunes. 
Uh, to play us out is another piece by Andres Baco uh, called Sky on the Wind. So goodbye and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>